So welcome to the panel on RNZ National Friday afternoon. Hello. Uh, and uh, just recapping that, Marama saying uh, that the tunnel, Mount Victoria Tunnel, is now closed in both directions due to a crash, very recent uh, crash actually. So please avoid the area and use an alternate route. We'll keep you up to date on when that is cleared. Also, a truck breakdown on the Southern Motorway, State Highway 1, blocking the right northbound lane on State Highway 1 just after the Papakura on-ramp. So pass with care and expect delays. We will update you on a traffic as it comes to hand. Eight past four. Now the parents of the baby needing urgent heart surgery tried to stop doctors preparing the infant for the operation last night. The High Court responded by ordering the parents not to obstruct health staff at Starship Hospital. The New Zealand Herald viewed a video of the moment the baby uh, was taken for surgery. All of you are criminals, the father yelled at the officers and hospital staff present in the room and tells a hospital staff member, you will not be a part of that surgery tomorrow. We did not authorise that. The baby's heart surgery reportedly started at 8am this morning. With us is Professor of Philosophy Tim Dare from the University of Auckland. He's published on legal ethics, immunisation programmes, parental rights and medical decisions and he sits on a number of local and national research and clinical ethics committees. Professor De- Tim, Tim Dare, welcome to the programme. Nice, nice to join you. Oh, what an extraordinary and deeply sad case this is, Tim. I mean, capturing interest here and globally. Uh, tell us about are these sorts of cases relatively rare? Um, they, they are rare. So in New Zealand, I think we would expect to see um, a case in which the court takes guardianship perhaps every three years or so, just, just off the top of my head, um, but um, uh, the cases are all a bit different, and quite often they're cases in which parents have, for instance, religious objections to, to say, transfusions, um, but those parents may have no, no issue with the medical technology itself. Um, so that, in many cases, they, they may actually be rather relieved that they don't have to make the, the decision, but they're perfectly happy to have it go ahead. So this case is a bit more fraught than those, of course, because the parents' objection actually is an objection to the medical procedure. Yeah. Uh, Another aspect you raised, Tim, is the impact that this case might have on other parents who lean toward anti-vaccination? So, look, I'm sure um, um, the judge thought about this. I don't think it's discussed in the case, but obviously... There are always worries um, in cases in which you're empowering medical professionals to to compel treatment um, or to to require medical professionals to report things and so on and so on. That one one, uh, uh, side effect, if you want, of that is that it provides a disincentive to parents who, after all, may already be sceptical about medical services. So I I think as a community, we've got a lot of work to do around this case. I mean, most obviously... You know, let's let's just all hope the procedure goes smoothly in the in the in the baby as as well. Yes, um, but I think I think you know after all of this, we have a lot of work as a community to restore um, uh, trust um, uh, in the health services. Yeah, well, let's bring in Sue Kisley and Sue. I mean, uh, wearing your hat too as a uh, person who was on a capital, in fact, a district health board board, weren't you? 
Yes, and, mm. and you know, I can't even imagine what it would be like for a you know, surgeon trying to do best, having people screaming at them you know, in that way, telling them they're criminals. But I guess what I'm really worried about is how this case is being politicised mm. and seized upon and, and, and used for other people's political agendas. So already outside the hospital, we've got right-wing groups like Voices for Freedom and uh, that American group, uh, Steve Bannon's Counterspin Media, and their whole agenda is to sow discord and fear and undermine trust in society. And, of course, the lawyer in this case, Sue Gray, is also co-leader of the New Zealand Outdoor and Freedom Party. So my concern is that it will this whole issue is going to continue to be used during election year as part of an ongoing political campaign. And so that further foments uh, fear and distrust around this issue, which I think most of us have hoped we had put behind us. So the issue will keep on bubbling away, uh, Professor Deere. Well, so I, I, I share Sue's concerns. I think it's, it's extremely unfortunate this has all been fought out in, in the public gaze and, and that it has, I think, been to some extent hijacked um, by, by those groups. I, I guess my hope would be that um, come our, our, our mainstream election, these views are pretty extreme, actually, and um, um, I would be, well, I'm hopeful that it won't make much difference at, at that level, but, but we shall see. But normally, of course, these cases are resolved by uh, medical professionals and families talking together. There are, there are lots of disagreements about medical treatment, and, and normally it's settled quietly behind the scenes um, without mm. public pressure and without people leaping on board. And unfortunately, you know, as Sue points out, that is what's happened in this case. Is that actually, before we go to uh, Peter, is that a reminder of all of us, uh, Tim, that there will be those... Um, uh, there was even one in my whānau many years ago when my dad died around sort of cultural practices, you know, him being from Fiji, that um, these sorts of actually quite uh, significant ethical decisions play out a fair bit. Um, they do. And I think, um, uh, you know, medical professionals, health professionals will be very used to having conversations where there's cultural um, concerns about treatments and um, and, and disagreements, and, and one of the things is that the um, on the the non scientific side, things can be presented very in very black and white terms. Health professionals are always likely to be say, talking in terms of probabilities of what they believe, um, and that can be misinterpreted. I think that people think, oh, you know, the doctors are admitting they're not absolutely certain what will happen, and so on. Whereas it's very easy for alternative therapists to say, you know, we will save this child, this will happen. And so there's a sort of contrast in the styles of discourse here, I think, is part of the trouble. You're right. Peter Dunn. Well, I'm interested in, in, the, in the sort of the conflict between um, the rights of the child to be treated and to get the, the appropriate treatment and the, I suppose, the competing rights of the parents, even mm. if their views might be misguided and outside the mainstream. I'm leaving to one side the external noise because I see that as really unhelpful and irrelevant to this debate. But problematic, but Professor, I'm just interested in how you reconcile the sort of the, the, the different ethical perspectives of the rights of the child versus the concerns of the parent. Well, that's central to, to all of these cases. Um, normally, of course, they all line up because, because um, um, the, the rights of the child are always paramount in these cases. 
but in most case, in, in, in most instances, the parents are acting in order to protect those interests mm. and in ways which reasonable people believe will protect those interests. So um, the, the whole point of the guardianship order, of course, is to say, uh, to recognise that this is a case in which the default rights of parents to have it, to determine the medical treatment of their children don't line up with what the medical profession, the health profession, um, reasonably think are the best interests of the child. Um, so so I, I think you're right. The, the, that's precisely the, the clash in this case. Normally those things just go together neatly. Where they don't, the rights of the child have paramount, uh, are paramount. And that's, that's what the judges decided in this case. And where where does that leave the, um, the health professionals? Um, does, that, does that give them a protection or are they still exposed? Uh, no, it does give them a protection. So, um, uh, you know, the, the shouts that they are criminal, mm. um, uh, you know, may be distressing, but of course they're false mm. um, because they're acting under, under lawful authority. Um, in, in this case now, the health professionals who have medical guardianship, so the court has guardianship and they appointed the health professionals, their agents, those health professionals can give consent for the surgery um, and for the transfusion. So so they're not exposed. I mean, of course, um, you know, they, they may feel vulnerable, um, but, but legally they're not exposed, no. No, I mean, the reading the uh, transcript of uh, the video that uh, the Herald saw, I mean, the situation, the, this particular situation, Professor Dare, was, uh, you know, uh, pretty intense. Uh, there is no doubt uh, is going to place another level of strain uh, on the medical profession. They don't need another level of strain. They'll most likely perhaps have to review safeguards should another instance like this increase or other instances? Well, probably. I mean, there's one... Um, probably um, um, surgeons are used to working in a high-stress area. You know, they're, they're doing... Um, very demanding work, and um, um, I wouldn't be surprised if many of them are fairly good at at just putting those those um, extraneous concerns aside. Um, um, as to whether they will need um, special security and so on, um, uh, it's hard to judge. I mean, the DHB will have to make that that call. Um, but I, look, I'm sure everyone in, involved in this case has probably attracted um, some unpleasant. Um, attention, um, emails and so on. I, I've certainly had them. Um, so, um, uh, you know, pro- I'm sure the DHB will be looking into that. It's no DHBs to- left um, anymore. Uh, but also, um, I have noticed that in Italy, they've got a similar case, similar things happening in America, Canada. So it's possible that we'll see this sort of whips up a bit of hysteria around this issue and we might see um, more of this sort of thing. Okay. Professor Dea Kiora, I appreciate your time today. Thank you very much. That is Professor of Philosophy Tim Dare from Auckland University who's published widely on legal ethics, parental rights and medical decisions. 18 past four. Uh, quite a few people getting in touch with me and saying, Wallace, for God's sake, get both sides. The panel... RNZ National. The impacts of COVID-19 on the education system is significant and ongoing, says a new cabinet paper. Significant risks exist if we fail to act. With us is Post-Primary Teachers Association President Melanie Weber. Kia ora, Melanie. 
ora. This was uh, quite quite something uh, that uh, there's an urgent need for a multi-million dollar package to actually catch up for learning of thousands of teenagers. Good to see such a strongly worded document like this, Melanie. It, it is really good seeing that support there in terms of being really clear about what the sector needs and that there is an issue. And I mean, you'd expect there to be an issue. We've got students who have ex- who have missed out on school. And we know that kids being in school is what they need to do in order to learn. Yeah, I mean, it was pretty blunt, wasn't it, uh, that the fact that uh, actually, Melanie, students had really suffered over this time. Students absolutely have suffered through that time. It's, it's almost like teachers in schools are doing something. Um, so that's caused a real... Um, a, a real problem where students have missed out on the learning. They haven't had that regular um, that regular process going through. And I know in secondary, what we've had happening a lot of is um, we've had real focus on those senior students. Well, the students we've got now who are year 11 have only ever experienced um, a COVID environment. Yeah. And we've got students coming into our schools in year nine next year who spent their entire intermediate in um, under COVID environments. And so their learning has slipped behind and we need to make sure that we've got these supports in for them. All right, Sue Kishley. Yeah, well, um, reports like these, they sort of highlight the incredible stress that the pandemic and the lockdown have um, placed in, on literally every corner of our society. But, you know, the, I think the fact that the government is putting money into trying to enable schools to help pupils catch up with extra tutoring is really the only thing you can do in this situation, isn't it? Yes, the other piece that is worrying me is the other paper that came out um, today as well, and I think we need to talk about that too, and that's the one that talks about how we're losing more and more teachers, and in particular yes. secondary teachers. Yeah. So that's, mm. uh, you know, they're looking mm. at between, you know, an increase between 400 and 1,000. And when you look at that in secondary school, because of the, the number of classes that a teacher um, has, you're actually looking at tens of thousands of students who are being impacted by this because um, any one teacher is teaching 26 students um, and, you know, five, five lots of 26 students. Um, and so that means that that impact is huge with kids not having a trained and qualified teacher in front of them. Yeah, I know that the, uh, the the school that Little Junior goes to, you know, the little newsletter that they put out, they're saying that a, a significant amount of planning goes into uh, 2023 to get, you know, the mix and balance of uh, teaching across those students just right. Uh, Peter Dunn, what's your questions or thoughts on well, this? I, I think there are two aspects to, to, to this. I, look, I think there are real challenges for kids at the upper end of school who've been badly disrupted over the last three years in terms of their future career progression and focus and all of that sort of thing. And I, so I agree with the report in that score. But I also think there's a bigger challenge, which I'm not sure is being um, sufficiently acknowledged, for kids at the other end, just coming into the education system, kids who've known nothing different, really, in their formative years than the pandemic environment and what the impacts on them will be in terms of expectations and the capacity of the system over their time in primary school and on into secondary school to sort of make up the lost ground, I, I, I'm worried about as well. So I'd, I'd be interested in, in Melanie's thoughts on both those points. Melanie? That's absolutely right. We need trained and qualified people working with our kids. And when we have these huge teacher shortages, we don't have those qualified, experienced 
professionals there to support them. And that's what we need at both ends of it. And so it becomes a, you know, one of those cycles where it's, um, it's harder to work in environments where you don't have, um, where you don't have that support, where you don't have those trained and qualified teachers. You're having to support colleagues. It's much harder keeping ahead and being able to teach your students. And you're also getting students who are coming in who may not have received that in their primary schools as well. And it's really tough. So what do you do starting next year, given that the teacher shortage is going to be with us for some time, it's not going to be instantly resolved. What do you do within the system to try and make up that lost ground, or do you just wait until you've got more teachers available? And how do you? How are we mm. going to get a thousand more teachers by next year? Yes, Melanie. It's a really, really tricky one. Um, one of the things that um, is is that we have huge numbers of teachers who aren't actually teaching at the moment. Mm. We have people who are leaving because the conditions and the pay in, in, teaching, in teaching are not where they need to be in order to recruit people in. So when you've got, um, what happens is when you've got a um, very low unemployment rate, teachers have a lot of transferable skills, you're really struggling in schools, you're not getting the supports you need, and um, it's really, really distressing when you are working with young people and you are unable to support them as you want to be able to, and so they're leaving. So you end up in this, in this wicked cycle. We have resolved this problem before, back in the early 2000s, when we uh, increased the numbers of teachers that we had in schools by improving the conditions in classrooms and by improving the pay, and that then attracts more people into the profession to keep them in. But we do actually have people who would come back in if we did have the paying conditions right. Very good indeed, Melanie. Kia ora. Thanks uh, for your time here today on the panel. That is Melanie Weber, Post-Primary Teachers Association President on uh, Yes, you saw this on RNZ. Uh, John Garrison wrote a very interesting piece, uh, a document's warning of significant risk to learning that COVID-19 had done real damage to the school system. Thank you very much for all your feedback this afternoon. We'll try and read some out. You can text me at 2101. You can email the panel at rnz.co.nz. And we've got a bit of feedback about this. This did the rounds on TikTok. An American tourist was wondering what on earth that word on a Christmas item was. Turns out the word was bauble. I don't think I've ever heard this word before. That should say ornaments. And I was curious about this. It should say ornaments. Well, Caroline Bruner Cuff is originally from Washington. And uh, Caroline uh, was the voice that I'd hear in my ear on the Backbenchers TV show. Kia ora, Caroline. Kia ora, Wallace. How are you? Very good to hear you. And that wonderful voice of yours. Goodness gracious me, that brings back memories. So, bauble, what of it? don't think it's a foreign word to Americans, ah. at least not to me, but we would say ornament pretty uh, much. Okay, I mean. so you would say ornaments? Yeah. What, are there any other words, because we've got quite a response from this about people, someone says um, vivids and twink, like seriously, who named these? Um, what about you, Carolyn, when you came to New Zealand, what, uh, what words stumped you? Uh, well, twink was one of them, because um, that is not what I think of when I hear twink. Um, I hear whiteout. Um, but um, a big one, I, cause I, I'm a strange little case. I'm a Yang Kiwi. My mother's a New Zealander. My father's American. So I had a lot of New Zealand words growing up. But one that escaped was um, bench. Uh, a a bench what? To me is, a bench. Uh, a bench to me is something you sit on. You know, you might have... Um, 
at a hallway waiting outside the teacher's or the principal's office or something. You sit on the bench um, or in a park. Um, but uh, I didn't know it was a, we call it a kitchen counter or a counter. And so <laughs> my aunt said to me, um, oh, just put it on the bench. And my mother walked out and said, why is your rubbish on the, <laughs> in the hallway? And I said, she told me to put it on the bench. But I didn't know, you know, no idea. Um, and <laughs> the one that was really embarrassing was uh, I was going skiing and I was, I was going around shops to find something to put my, my chapstick in and my gloves and my tickets and all that kind of stuff. And I was looking for a fanny pack. Um, yeah, I got a lot of strange looks from people when I was asking for a fanny pack when actually I was asking for a bum bag. But I didn't know. Oh. Because a fanny is your bum in the United States. It's not here. What? It's your bum. So, you, you call you call you call your bum a fanny in the US? Yeah. Oh yeah. Sue Kidley? You um, you would say kiss my fanny. And they, you meant kiss my butt. Lived in America for eight years and never worked that one out. But there are all those famous um you know, people told to bring a plate and turn up naively with their plate their plate, you know. But no food. <laughs> Heavens above! I'm still kind of shocked, really. Peter Dunn. Well, my my favourite is um, I was telling Sue before of a chap came to work for us some years ago from the United States, a good, decent, liberal guy, and I went to pick him up on his first day from the hotel, and he was looking terribly shocked. He'd been out for a walk in the morning. He was quite pale and shaken. I said, "What's the matter?" He said, "Oh, I just saw the newspaper billboard, and I didn't realise New Zealand was like that." And the newspaper billboard read, "All black trials tomorrow." He'd taken a completely different meaning to the one we would take from it. And he, Goodness. So it's that sort of thing which, you, you know, you, you know I, I was obviously born in this country, so I don't have problems with the way we talk, apart from the diction. But um, I can see others coming here would find a lot of our phraseology, our words and our expressions quite difficult. And that was one that just, uh, you know, had a completely different context and a completely different Amazing. meaning to the one we would take. Lost in translation, eh, Caroline? So the message is: if I go and if I go to your fair town, Washington, uh, it will be. I can. You, you're quite safe to say you're not joking that I can call a bottom a fanny. One hundred percent, and people would never consider it otherwise. Okay, very good. Hey, good, to, good to hear from you, Caroline Bruno Kafir Kiara. Uh, yes, indeed. Very interesting uh, there. Uh, now, um, nursing through me says when I had a baby in 1982 and about a year later we were flying to the North Island, the travel agent arranging our flights said the baby was free as long as I nursed him until he was four. The only definition I knew for nursing was to breastfeed. And I didn't relish breastfeeding my baby until he was four just to get him on flight for free. Um, I became friends with a lady from Canada and was meeting her up to catch up and she said, how about the Savo? No, I said, how about the Savo? She said, what's an Arvo? You're on the panel.